you help my speech, my words, not be in my own wisdom, but that these words would be a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that the faith, my faith, the faith of the people hearing me today would not be in work, would not rest in wisdom of me, the wisdom of men, but would rest in the power of God. God, we ask for your power to work in our hearts today. Your spirit would help us to see that you are the God who fights for us and beside us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're in Joshua 10, as I mentioned. Turn there. If you didn't have a copy of it, go ahead and turn there. This chapter is really long, which is why I broke it up into to three sections. And what we're going to do is take a step back and actually go back through the whole chapter. So I took two messages. So we're going to fly back through, the first, through this first section. Don't worry, we won't be here till tomorrow. <laughs> but what we're going to do is read through it. And I want to just highlight some things for you. And in the handout, the front page has the breakdown of how I've outlined this chapter. So let's just read here. In the first part, you're going to see in the first 15 verses, this is when the, the story of the sun being stood still, verses 1 through 15. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all his men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, said to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmush, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And then the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horan and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horan, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, 
sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on the enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Right, that's the first battle we see. We already went through that, but what we saw there, we're calling that the Battle of Gibeon. We see that the enemy attacks, right? God promises a victory in verse 8. No man will stand, is what he said. And then we see God brings the victory. If you're kind of paying attention to who's doing the action in there, God did this, God did this, God did this. Oh, and the people of Israel did this, God did this, and God did this, right? So we see that battle. All right, let's keep reading. Let's look at the battle of Makeda. That's what we covered last week. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmush, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. That's the guys from the beginning, right? Verse 24, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to putting your feet on the necks of the enemies, will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. That was last week's message, and we saw that when he put his, their feet on the necks of their enemies, we saw that that is a theme that runs through Scripture, that God will put all of his enemies under his feet, and that this is a picture pointing forward to Christ, who will rule and reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet, we saw in 1 Corinthians. Same pattern that we saw here, the enemy hides. They're afraid. God crushes the enemy. Very much so, right? Hailstones, sun standing still. And then we see again in verse 25, God promises 
of victory. So that's where we've been. Now the rest of the chapter, the battles of the south, we're going to see a similar pattern. All right? We're going to read that. And I want you to see that the enemy trembled at the very beginning. Remember in verse 2, it says, He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. That's what prompted them to get this alliance of five kings together. So as I read these verses, these next verses, it's going to feel very tedious to you, especially in the 21st century. We're like, who writes like this? Because what you're going to see is repetition. You're going to see similar words, similar phrases, so kind of keep an ear out for those as we read those. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into his hand, into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people, and he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. All right, I think you see a pattern. (laughs) If you miss the pattern, let's talk. (laughs) We see like every single one of those battles, there's troop movement from one location to the next, right? Then the battle's waged. And then thirdly, the capture of the city. And sometimes it's king and occupants. Fourth, the destruction of every person. That's emphasized. Fifth, being struck with the edge of the sword. And then six, you always see a comparison to the previous destruction. He did it just like he did it to this one. He did it just like he did it to this one, right? We see the pattern. So what are we supposed to see in all of that? 
It's very interesting, especially if you're in, you know, involved in military things. It's interesting to you. But as a Christian, what am I to see in this? Here's the point. What we see in this chapter is a pattern that God gives complete victory. Now, I missed. There it is. Point P there. B there. God gives complete victory. That's why it keeps saying every person with the edge of the sword, none was left alive, to help them see that God gave complete, total victory over this area of the south, okay? Well, the, you're, we're only halfway through the book, and it feels like he already wiped out, all, you know, took over the whole area. This is just a geographical area that covers the south. We also see there that God fought for his people. That's literally what it says, right? In verse 42, and Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for his people. So when we, when you're reading the Bible, especially a chapter like this, it's really easy to get lost, isn't it? And forget what's going on in the big picture. So we're going to take a step back and see a battle pattern here, right? So if you're tracking with these handouts, turn it over and upside down because apparently I don't know how to use a copier. <laughs> what we're going to see is a pattern in this whole chapter, all 43 verses, all right? So what's the first thing we see in this chapter? We see that God promises to fight. He tells his people at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of each of those sections, there's this promise to fight that God gives. And then we see that God brings the victory, right? First in Gibeon, God brought the victory. And in Makeda, God brought the victory. And in all of these next in the south, we see that God brought the victory. That's the pattern. Then we also see something that always kind of follows up after it says, God did this. He brings the victory. And it seems kind of counterintuitive, but it said, we see that the people go to war. That seems a little counterintuitive, counterintuitive doesn't it? If, if God brought the victory, then why is the next thing we see in each of these stories that the people go to war? I thought he gave a victory, right? We see that pattern, though. God won. And then it goes, da, 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 the people did this. God won, and then the people do this. It's an interesting tension. Let's explore that in just a minute here. The next thing we see after that in the pattern is this statement that shows God wins. Right? That's the pattern in this chapter in all three of those sections. God promises to fight. God brings the victory. The people fight, but God wins. All right? That's the pattern we see. And in fact, if you think about it, that's the pattern we've actually seen in the book of Joshua too. From chapter 1 all the way up into this point, God tells Joshua or the people, I'm going to fight for you. You're going to be successful. He told them that at the Jordan River. And then what does he do? He moves the Jordan River. The people put aside their fears, and go into the land. That's them going to war. And then God wins, and God wins. It's the whole pattern that you actually see in this whole book of Joshua. 
God makes promises and he keeps them. The people get involved and he helps them win. What's interesting, though, to me is that's not just the pattern in this chapter or in the book of Joshua, but I think it's the pattern in the entire Bible, right? So let's, let's take a see, okay, how is that true in the entire Bible? God promises to fight from Genesis 3, right? What happens there? Adam and Eve sin because Satan deceives them. And God makes a promise right there. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And this seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, even though he'll try to bruise him on the heel. God makes a promise from Genesis 3. But even just going from Genesis 3 through the Old Testament, you see this kind of thing all the time. God making promises to fight for his people. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment will condemn. In judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. 2 Chronicles 32, 8. Hezekiah tells the people, with him is an arm of the flesh, their enemy. But with us is the Lord our God. What does our God do to help us and fight our battles, right? That's so encouraging. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. We could receive this all over the Old Testament, but you get to the New Testament and we continue to see God making promises to bring victory. And I think it'd be an encouraging exercise for you to do on your own this week is to look through the New Testament where God gives promises assuring victory. I'm going to let you do that this week. But God promises the fight. The next part of the pattern we see in the whole Bible is that God brings the victory. And just like the most climactic battle in the book of Joshua, which is this battle at Gibeon where God holds the sun still and brings hail, stones, that's the most climactic battle in the book of Joshua. God moved heaven and earth. The most climactic battle in the Bible happens at the cross. God moves heaven and earth and brings the victory by putting his son on the cross for you and me and then raises him from the dead, moving heaven and earth in order to bring victory for you and me. Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. This is like a statement of the victory of God through Christ. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There you go. God brings the victory. So Christ on the cross secured the victory. And then we continue, though, to see this pattern that we saw in Joshua. God brings the victory, but then you see the people fight. The people go to war. And that's true in the New Testament still. We see Christ raised from the dead... And it's declared the victory, but then you get a passage like this in Ephesians 6. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. I'm so confused. If Christ won the victory, why are we talking about fighting as Christians still? Is it an interesting tension, isn't it? Well, I would propose to you that what happens here is a mop-up battle. Okay? Um, I've maybe used this illustration before. But if you know a little bit about World War II, when the U.S. enters the war in the European theater, it starts with D-Day, which, June 4th, right? Coming up here. It starts with D-Day. And historians have looked at that and studied that. And the war had been going for six years or so prior to that. Hitler was really growing. But historians have agreed by that day, D-Day, was the doom sealed for Hitler. It was like a done deal. The fact that they got off those beaches onto the land, it was like a done deal. But we all know that from that point till those troops reached Berlin, many died because what is it? It's a mop-up battle. We're taking the enemy is already falling now at this point, and it's a matter of time. That's kind of like what I think is happening. When Christ rose from the dead, there's still battle that happens, but it's assured victory. You will win because Christ already won, right? So God promises the fight. God brings the victory. The people go to war. And then we see this pattern in the Bible, the whole Bible, that God wins. That is why Christ came to win. It says it in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we know that he will win because the same verse we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians 15, says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Isn't that weird? He's reigning as the king who won, but yet he has to do that until all of his enemies are under his feet. So there's this weird tension of already Christ has won the battle, but not yet is it fully finished. So we see that pattern in Joshua. We see it in the whole Bible. But I want you to see that this is the same pattern in your life. This is the same pattern in your life. God promised to fight. God promised to fight. You know that he has said things to you in his word like, I will never leave you or forsake you. That he has promised to complete the work in you that he's begun. He's said to you things that like, I will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Promises like that have been given to you for you in your life. And we know this in our head, right? We know those kinds of promises. And we know this one, that God brought the victory. We know that Christ died for us. Not only that he didn't just die, but he conquered death by rising from the grave. He won the victory. We know this is true for our lives. 
if we've repented of our sins and said, Jesus, I have a I'm a mess and I can't do this without you. It's only you. If we've done that, we know that this is true for us. But I'll be honest, there's a disconnect, at least in my head, between my head and my heart with these things, right? And it, that's because I forget this next part. I forget that I have to go to war every day. I forget that I have to go to war every day. Now, there are um, certain preachers that bug me. Um, I'm not going to name names, but I'll drop some hints along the way, and you may pick up on what I'm laying down. I call them prosperity preachers, and they have this, this name-it-and-claim-it approach where they, they tell you that God wants to bless you with health and wealth, right? And all you have to do is have enough faith, and you pray for it, and you're going to get it. And, and I criticize those guys often because that's false teaching. That isn't solid. That is not what the message of the Bible is, okay? However... It occurred to me, as much as I like to rant about that, I'm actually guilty of the same thought patterns in a way you may not have thought of. For instance, have you prayed and prayed and prayed for something and not seen God answer that prayer? Maybe you've been praying for a pregnancy that's not happened yet. Maybe you've prayed for relief at a difficult job situation and it's not been changed yet. Maybe there's a broken relationship that you've begged God to bring about reconciliation and it hasn't happened yet. And if you're like my, me, I find myself thinking something along these lines. I can't speak to the sun and tell it to stop. I don't see the earth stopping for me right now. I'm not winning the victory for sure. And I feel like I'm constantly losing. God just isn't answering my prayers. Now, the problem with that thinking is it's got the word me written all over it. And interestingly, that is the same kind of thinking that bugs me about the prosperity preachers, that if I just pray, God's going to be this magic vending machine for me. And that's not the way God works. And God does bless. God blesses some with health, but not all. I forget that who is the one that's going to win the victory in this story. The one who's going to win the victory in this grand story, in my story, is not me. It's God. I tend to get swallowed up in that same vortex of disillusionment when all of my dreams and desires are dashed. What's happened there is that I forget that I'm in a battle and that I go to war every day. So let me get a little more practical because I still feel like I'm talking in fuzzy land a little bit. How do we fight? We've said that we go to war every day. How are we to fight? We've seen through this chapter in Joshua 10, this tension that God wins, but yet you see the people with a sword. Well, how do we fight? We know that God's saying he'll fight for us, but God's calling you into the fight with him. 
What does that look like? And there's a term you may have, maybe have heard before, and it's called spiritual warfare. And that's really what I'm talking about, is spiritual warfare. But I think some have pointed out, and I agree with them, that we tend to err on two sides with the spiritual warfare term. Some of us land over here that says, acts almost like there is no unseen realm. We just do our thing and, and go to church and don't realize that there is this unseen realm. The other end is that everything is a power encounter with Satan and his demons, right? I don't think either are the right places. Somewhere in the middle is really what spiritual warfare is about. <laughs> so let me just give you three points about what, what I mean by going to war every day. What is spiritual warfare? Let me first tell you what it's not, okay? According to the Bible, not just something that are my thoughts, but I think according to the Bible. I'd say, first of all, the spiritual warfare is not praying at or against demons or Satan. Now, how do I get that? A guy named Greg Kugel helped me see this. When the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus does not say you need to name the principalities over Danville and bind them. He doesn't say that you can command Satan in your authority to do something. That isn't what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. When they he says, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. What does he say? He says, deliver us from evil. God, would you deliver us from evil? Now that, that whole phrase right there goes right in the middle of the two extremes because it acknowledges that there is evil working against us. But it is also not you doing the, the, the winning here. God, we need you to deliver us from evil. There are references, though, all over the New Testament that help us see that Satan is very much active in trying to hinder the kingdom of God. In fact, it's, it, it's interesting because Satan has a kingdom of his own. You're like, really? I thought there's God's kingdom. Yes, there is God's kingdom. But it says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So somehow he has a kingdom. It doesn't rival God's. God's over this. But Satan does have a kingdom. So we cannot deny that. But we are not told that we can somehow destroy that kingdom. Christ does that. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Right? So we know that. We know Christ's kingdom is growing. His kingdom's greater than Satan's, and his kingdom will eventually stomp out all of Satan's. But in the meantime, then, what does this mean for us? What does spiritual warfare look like? Say, first of all, or second of all, spiritual warfare is about praying. It is about praying. In Ephesians 6 is kind of the go-to passage in the New Testament. We already saw that, right? That we're wrestling not against flesh and blood, that there's this unseen realm that we fight against. But at the end of all of that spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6, it's interesting that what does Paul say at the end of it? He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. That's a fancy word for prayer for all the saints. So clearly prayer is involved in spiritual warfare right? We, so what do we pray? We're praying that God would deliver people from evil. 
That's what he told us to do. So we're praying specifically that God would deliver people, that God's kingdom would advance, advance, and that God's kingdom would spread through gospel ministry. And we pray that evil would be hindered. That's what we pray. That's spiritual warfare, praying that. It can mean more, but it does not mean commanding Satan and his demons, because you're not going to find that in Scripture. But I think spiritual warfare specifically has a little bit, it's something else, what it's really also about. And that is it's about truth. Let me show you a few scriptures to prove my point, and then I'm going to show you how that ties back into our prayer, okay? Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay, from that verse, what does Satan do? He deceives. He deceives. He tells lies. That's what he did in Genesis 3. And Jesus said he's been a liar from the beginning. And at the end of the book, he's still a liar. Right? He does not tell the truth. All right, 2 Timothy 2, last half of 25 God may perhaps grant opponents of the ministry repentance leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What's interesting to me is, what is Paul telling Timothy? He's praying that God would grant there. He's praying that God would grant repentance, but what would that repentance lead to? Knowledge of the truth. But in that verse, why do they not have knowledge of the truth? Because they've been captured by the liar. The liar has not been telling them the truth. Okay? So the great liar, one more passage here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's talking about the weapons of our warfare. All right, spiritual warfare here. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, I'll be a devil's advocate here for a minute. Paul, that sounds pretty awesome. Sounds to me like you're going into Satan's kingdom and tearing down those strongholds. That's pretty awesome. I want some of that. The problem is, is the next sentence doesn't say that you're binding Satan. Paul says in the next sentence, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against truth, against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare, interestingly, gets super personal because I cannot take Matt's thoughts captive. <laughs> God, through the apostle Paul, is talking to you and me that I have to take my thoughts captive. It's like, it's such a beautiful picture because I can see my thoughts running around wrecking havoc as if I could draw a cartoon here. And it's like grabbing that thought and holding it by the scruff of the neck and saying, you see this, punk? That's the truth. And then I tell that thought, no, 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 no. You must shut up and this is the right way to think. How do I know what the right way to think, what truth is, it's through the word of God, right? Spiritual warfare is primarily a battle over truth, over your heart, 
and mind and others' hearts and minds. Satan constantly wants to deceive you in order to weaken you. So then we have to ask, how do we grow in our ability to do that? How do, I, how do I grow in the ability to know this, to fight this heart, mind, and heart battle? We have to take advantage of the means that God's given us. And I'm about to say the things that you would expect your pastor to say to you. I don't have magic answers that are different than what I'm about to say to you. You have to read your Bible. You have to read your Bible. Now, you may like, well, that seems really heady, Paul. Well, here's the thing. This is God's very word to you. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to help change your heart and your mind to look like the Son of God's. Spiritual warfare means that you need to get into this on a daily basis. And if you don't know how to do that, maybe you open it up and you're like, this is confusing to me. Come talk to us. That's why God gave you pastors, to equip you, to teach you, how do I read this in a way that I can understand it? What are the, what are the ways to read my Bible that were faithful to what's written here without being cherry-picking? We're here to help you because God gave us to you to equip you. That's our job. We want to help you. It's a little bit like the drill sergeant in basic training that I had. Hopefully, we're nicer than him. <laughs> but he was there to equip me on how to fight in battles. And he, he, like from simple things, like how do I fall down with an M16 in my hand without busting my nose? I'm, that's no joke. We were like, they, they lined us up. We're all standing here, and you've got, and they teach you, okay, I want you to drop down one knee, hold your rifle out like this, and then, and it seems super pedantic. You're like, really? Some people took it serious, the others didn't. And then the next thing they wanted to do was run through the woods here, and when you hear something, you're supposed to fall down. People who didn't listen got a broken nose, because the sight on the M16 got in their face. <laughs> we are trying to help you see how not to break your face with the Word of God. <laughs> <laughs> because Donnie and I, I was at his, his shop one day, and he's like, Paul, you got to watch this video. This is so confusing. And what does that guy do? He like threw Bible verses, tons of Bible verses. And it was saying things that like, that just can't be true. That's what Donnie was saying. This can't be true, but I don't know. It's right from the Bible. We want you to learn how to read the Bible so you don't break your face with your Bible. <laughs> we want your mind to be guided towards Jesus. That's how you do spiritual warfare. And don't think that this, you can do that and it not be spiritual warfare. I went to seminary and had to read all kinds of books about the Bible and learn about the Bible. And I read books by people that I could tell did not love Jesus, but they're teaching me how to read the Bible. So that's the next part is you've got to realize that every time you're reading this, it should be a supernatural Thing. Because we truly believe what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And then in Psalms, it talks about how God uses his word. And when his word is spoken, power is being imparted because his words have power. 
So we want you to learn how to read and study and nourish your soul with the Word of God. This wire is driving me nuts today. <laughs> now, here's the thing. How does prayer then fit into all of that? Because I said that spiritual warfare is about praying. I can't hit the back button very well, but that's okay. Spiritual warfare is about praying, and it goes hand in hand with your Bible. Because you take what God's saying to you, and you pray that back to him. You use those words, because they're his words, and you know if you're using his words, you can't be wrong <laughs> in praying. And you let those words shape you, and you tell God where you're at, where your heart is at. And you ask God, would you deliver my mind from these broken thoughts? And you ask the Spirit of God to help you. But then you use also what you're learning, and you pray, God, would you do this, take, teach this truth, take this truth, and implant it in others. My enemies who are fighting against me, would you take your word and open their eyes with it? We could talk a lot more about this, but here's the thing I want you to know. It's not called spiritual warfare for nothing. Because as, as Kevin DeYoung said in that very thing, first thing I read today, war is hell. These battles are hard, and they will tire you out. And they will drain you of all your emotion. It'll take your emotional strength to the brink because it's warfare after all. I was watching a World War II uh, series that follows men who were dropped in on D-Day behind the enemy lines. And it's the story of how they, they are trying to get to Berlin, right? And it's, it's interesting to me because I see parallels to the spiritual history of the church and God's people because there were some guys who died right on landing right after the jump some of them even died in the air there were some who got all the way to Bastogne and died there not having seen the victory marches in Berlin and there are some who make it all the way to see it and for us as Christians it's going to be very hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard. I kid you not. And you don't know if you're going to get to see Jesus come back in the clouds. But what you do know is that if you don't get to see it right then, you'll be with him coming in the clouds. <laughs> right? So here's the thing. I feel like I just skipped. Yep. Okay. God has not promised us this best life now. He's not promised us the ability to command the sun to stand still like we saw in the beginning of Joshua 10. But what has God promised us? He's promised us a verse like this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That doesn't sound like a promise. It's coming. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We're all in this war together. After you have suffered, here's where the promise is coming. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion, the king forever and ever. Those are the kind of verses that we need to sink our teeth into, to bind to our hearts, right? These sufferings that you're going through, this verse is reminding us, are temporary. 
The battle's already been won, and who can be against us if God is for us? So what's the one particular truth, if spiritual warfare is about truth, that I have to daily remind myself, the one I keep telling you, God will win. God will win. We have to cry out like the psalmist in 70, chapter 74. He says, how long, and this echoes my heart, how long, when I heard the news this week of those children dying and their parents not being able to come to the school and pick them up that day. I cried out, how long, oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. That's what I pray. That's my heart. But I got to pray this next line from that psalm. Yet, God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So what are we not promised in this war? What are you not promised? You're not promised that you won't get hurt. You're not promised that you'll be wealthy if you speak to that mountain. You're not promised that there won't be heartbreak. You're not promised that your children will rise up and call you blessed if you just teach them well and point them to Jesus. You're not promised that they will. It's painful. You're not promised that there won't be broken relationships. You're not promised that you won't lose your job or your health. You're not promised that you won't be killed along the way. Well, what are we promised? So much, but especially this. God will win. He will win. He's the one who fights for us, his people, for his glory and our joy. He's the supreme treasure that is ours forevermore. And we can delight in him and take confidence in him because when we fight on our knees, when all is said and done, we know he will bring the victory. Let's pray. God, we believe these truths that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will reign until you've subdued all enemies under your feet. We believe those things, but I confess I'm like the psalmist, and I sometimes wonder when, God, how long do we have to fight? God, strengthen us for the battle. Help us as we walk through the mop-ups to remember that this is mop-up battle, that you've already won, and that even if you take us in this fight, you're going to take us home to be with you. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are in parts of the world today where they cannot celebrate freedom. They are hiding to worship. We ask that you would hinder the evil one from the gospel going out. God, we ask that you would hinder the evil one in Uvalde, Texas, that hearts would not be discouraged full ultimately, but would find hope in Jesus through this trial, this tragedy. God, we ask that you would hinder the evil one in Danville, Illinois. Would you deliver the young people who are decept, deceived, trapped, in these thoughts that drugs and crime and gangs will make them happy or trapped in the thought that success and wealth will give them happiness, would you deliver us from those same wrong thinking patterns? Help us 
by your spirit, shape us and mold us to be people who love your word. Would you give us grace to be people who learn how to fight through prayer? In Jesus' name, amen.